0: Good morning, Servants Church. So good to be with you guys again. We're continuing our study through 1 Timothy. And so if you want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 with me, I'm going to read for you verses 8 through 15. But we're actually going to take two weeks to go through this section. And I think as I read this, you'll understand why. So follow along with me in your Bibles or on your device. uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. Paul writes... I desire then in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, Do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And Father, I pray that as we get into this very controversial section of Scripture... Uh, Lord, that you would help us to see your heart, that we would be able to view and understand and apply this section of Scripture through a gospel lens. Lord, we pray that you would use these next two studies to to bring a peace in our heart about difficult issues, to to give us courage, uh, Lord, uh, to be at times countercultural about things. Uh, Lord, to be able to, to bring the truth of the gospel. To uh, all people in all circumstances. Use this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just to remind you of the context, Paul has been talking about prayer. We saw this last, last week where Paul brought up the issue of, of how prayer should happen, why prayer should happen. And we talked about that really what motivates prayer should be the goodness of God. It's who we're praying to that should motivate us to prayer. And so it's still in that context where Paul is sort of setting out the particulars for public worship that this issue comes in, where this section that's full of controversial ideas gets its application. And it's important as we, we get into this that we Well, I hope you know, this is why we're, or I hope you can see, this is why we're going to do this in two parts, because it's important that we really understand what's happening here. It's tempting when we read a scripture like this to try to explain it away, or maybe just breeze over it, but there's something here that that God wants us to understand, and it's especially important because it is so controversial. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about just verses 8 to 10, and we're going to talk about uh, uh, men and women and how they are both equally important in their participation in a public worship service. Um, but what we're wanting to talk about in these two weeks is, is the priority of complementary roles. Now, we've been saying that the theme of 1 Timothy is the priorities for the local church. And as Paul is having Timothy kind of reprioritize Uh, what's happening in the churches in Ephesus. One of the priorities is understanding the roles of men and women and how those things might be, those roles might be distinct. Now, to deal with this, there's some things we have to understand. Specifically, we need to understand the importance of recognizing context. And what I mean by that is we need to first and foremost recognize that the scripture was written in a patriarchal context. And, And here's what I mean by this. I'm going to give you the Cambridge Dictionary definition for patriarchal or a patriarchy. Uh, it's a society in which the oldest male is the leader of the family or a society controlled by men in which they use their power to their own advantage. Now, we, we know what a patriarchy is. That, that word is a popular word now. We, we see the patriarchy as something that, but that still exists. We see the patriarchy as something that is the cause of, of many of the problems in society. This is what tends to happen. But it's important that we recognize that when Paul is writing this, as well as actually all the biblical authors... They're writing in a, in, 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 a, in a time, in a culture where it was just completely acceptable and assumed that it was right for there to be a patriarchy. And so that's really important as we begin to understand, especially the applications of these things. Now, we also need to recognize that when we're reading this, we're actually reading this from an, uh, what's called an egalitarian culture. Now, let me again give you another dictionary definition for what I mean by egalitarian. Egalitarian means that we're believing that all people are equally important and should have the same rights and opportunities in life. Now, just because we, we might say, or there are people who might say that the patriarchy still exists and it's the, it's the cause of all the ills or many of the ills in society, doesn't mean we're not an egalitarian society. We are an egalitarian society in that our laws are, are, are seeking to uh, make this belief a reality, now with this, what happens is that we can, we can uh, look at what, how we view things today and look back at how they view things there. And we can think to ourselves, well, actually, we obviously know much better now. And what that is, is what uh, C.S. Lewis referred to as chronological snobbery. And, and I want to read to you the, the, how, he, how he defined that term. Listen to this. Chronological snobbery is the uncritical acceptance acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. That's what we mean. In other words, if it's new, it's better somehow. Our ideas must be better because they're newer ideas. But that's really just not always true. And for us who are Jesus followers, that's never really true because we believe that the most profound truth that God's revealed to mankind came through this person and work of a man named Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. So it's important for us to to recognize this. Now it's also important for us us to recognize, we're talking about these cultural differences, this patriarchal culture in which this letter was written and the egalitarian culture which we're reading this letter. We need to recognize the gospel challenges both of those cultures. The gospel confronts uh, the assumptions of both of those cultures. Now, I, I, let me give you just a kind of a, a general uh, uh, summation of what I mean by that. Uh, when it comes to the patriarchal culture, Jesus um, and the, uh, or, I'm sorry, when it comes to the, uh, yeah, Jesus and his ministry to, with, and from women was completely countercultural. Now, when we read the Gospels and we see the involvement of women, we might still think it's not enough and it still seems to downplay women. And there was a lot of what we see, the patriarchal culture kind of coming to the surface on those pages. But when we see how Jesus related to women, we need to recognize that was radically countercultural. He exalted the state of women to a place that just really challenged everybody, including his own disciples, but also when it comes to um, uh, us living or reading from an egalitarian culture, we need to recognize too that Jesus, as well as all his apostles, they upheld authority structures that were, uh, that were still within this broken world. In other words, even after Jesus' death and resurrection, they still, withheld, they'd still held up the, the value of secular government, you might say, or civil government that that still had a value to it that should be submitted to you. And we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, they do the same thing when it comes to the roles of men and women. And so the gospel challenge is not just what we see today, but what they saw then. And so we have to be willing, if we're interested at all in being Jesus followers, we have to be willing to consider that. So what we're going to look at today and the rest of the time, just in these three verses, verses 8 to 10, is the simple reality that men and women are both equally called to participate and pray in humble dependency. So let's look at verse eight. Paul says in verse eight, I desire that in every place the men should pray. Now, just to be very, very clear, the word for men there, there's two words that are translated men or man in the New Testament. One is anthropos, which just means humanity. So it doesn't always mean males. Then there's another word here that's used here that means males. So Paul's being really clear here that he's he wants in every place that he ministers the men to pray. Now, this is important because the fact that he says in every place shows that Paul is wanting to set a universal pattern And a priority that men are the ones that that take initiative. You you might say here that Paul is calling men to both set the pattern and take the initiative when it comes to prayer. Now, I, I don't think this is too outrageous for me to say that often that's not what we do. Even in a patriarchy, even with men who, who tend to be patriarchal, they, they don't always take the lead, especially in spiritual things. They don't always set the pace for their families or for the church. I mean, let's be honest, guys. You come to a prayer meeting, there's always more women than men. And that's not what Paul says should be. Paul says men should set the pattern and take initiative. They should go first. Think about what men's and women's ministry, how they look so different. And they should look a little bit different, but it's amazing how often women will go right to, hey, let's have gospel-centered relationships. Let's talk with each other. Let's listen to each other. Let's pray for each other. And guys want to eat and play sport. It's like we're so slow to do the thing that Paul says we should be setting the standard of, which is to pray, to recognize through prayer our humble dependency on Jesus. But he doesn't just say he wants them to pray. He says he wants them to pray Lifting holy hands. Now, now there's, there's two things from this. One, one comes from uh, the fact that in, in most cultures, in fact, in most religions, this is the lifting of hands is kind of the, uh, the way that people show that they're praying. I mean, think about how, what we do with lifting of hands. What does this mean? It means I surrender, right? I give up. Don't take my money. That's what that means, Right. Or, or if, we, if we put our hands out like this, we say, what does it mean? I have nothing. I, I have nothing to offer. So the idea of lifting hands has that. that it's, we're coming in complete dependency. I have nothing to bring. And we're coming in humility. I surrender all. That's the idea of lifting hands. Now, what Paul's here is also talking about. He's echoing what we see throughout the Scripture, specifically from the Psalms. So in Psalm 24, here's what we read. Psalm 24, verses uh, 3 and 4 from the New Living Translation says this. The psalmist asks, Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Only those whose hands, notice, and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols and never tell lies. In other words, the lifting of hands assumes a heart that's being changed. And I want to be clean about, uh, clear about this too when we talk about lifting holy hands. If you are lifting clean hands, right? If, if we are lifting clean hands uh, to worship God, the assumption isn't that they've always been cleaned, but that they've been cleansed. And so the assumption here as well, is not if we're lifting holy hands, the assumption is not that those hands have always been holy or used for holy deeds. It's the idea that there's something, our, our whole lives from our hearts out to our hands is surrendered to God and set apart for Him. But I also think it's important for us to recognize this issue of Lifting hands. Now, this might sound a bit strange that I would be wanting to talk about the position, excuse me, the position of our hands when we pray as if that makes all the difference. It doesn't make all the difference, but it doesn't mean it should be neglected. I want to read to you a quote from John Calvin, the famous reformer uh, from about 500 years ago. Here's what he wrote. He says, the inward attitude certainly holds first place in prayer. In other words, what's going on in our hearts is the most important thing. But outward signs, kneeling, uncovering the head, lifting up the hands, have a twofold use. The first is that we may employ all our members for the glory and worship of God. And secondly, that we are, so to speak, jolted out of our laziness by this help and inflame each other with reverence of God. Now, now remember, Paul is writing here and and Luther, I'm sorry, Calvin is referring here to also to public worship. And I have to say there's something special. I'm, I'm thankful that I was discipled in a movement that had a freedom in his expression of worship, that the lifting of hands during praise or prayer was a normal thing. Because there is something, I have to say, there's something about the, 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 the putting yourself in a bodily position that helps us remember who we're talking to and, and reflects the heart that we have at that time. So Paul says he, he, what he wants is he wants men to, to be praying like that, praying with holy hands. Now also, we might say praying with uh, authentic devotion. Now, also, we see in the last part of verse 8 that Paul calls men to pray from gospel unity. And here's how I know this is what this means. Look at verse 8 at the end. He says that, to lift holy hands without arguing or quarreling. Now, some commentators think that the quarreling has happened between the men and the women. And, uh, and they, they think that because, obviously, in, in, in those days, in fact, often a lot of places around the world where, where Christians meet, you have men on one side of the church building and women on the other side of the church building. And the idea there is possibly that men and women, the husbands and wives, are arguing across the room and distracting the service. That would be quite comical, uh, but also quite annoying. But I don't think that's really what Paul's getting at. I think Paul's getting at not just about men and women relationships in this context or in this verse. But he's getting at the fact that if we're going to lift holy hands, if we're going to, as men, set a standard for seeking after God, it's got to come with... um, It's got to come with an intentional thoughtfulness about how we're relating to others. In fact, Jesus says a similar thing in Matthew chapter 23, when he talks about worship in a Jewish context, he says this, so if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your sacrifice to God. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, before you come lifting holy hands, make sure you're right with your brother. Make sure there's a priority there. So what Paul's doing in saying this, he's not just saying, okay, men, I'm calling you to pray in humble dependency, but he's quantifying what that humble dependency needs to look like, not just in that culture, but in all cultures. It needs to look like men who recognize that they can easily become disunified with each other, men who recognize they need God's grace to be able to even lift holy hands, and men who recognize they are completely and utterly dependent upon the God who saved them. So, now Paul then switches gears and he addresses the women. And notice in verse 9 what he says. Verse 9 he says, likewise. Now the idea, the fact that he says likewise is really important because He's saying, okay, the idea here is he's saying, okay, men, you pray in public and women, you pray in public. Now, I I know this is what this means because we can compare what Paul says here to Timothy with what Paul says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11. Listen to this. Paul says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prophesy or prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every uh, wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now, the idea of, of headship and all that, we're going to talk more about that next week, specifically about women prophesying. That's a very important aspect uh, of, of understanding what Paul's getting at here. But for our purposes this morning, it's just important that we recognize Paul saying women both pray and prophesy in the public meeting. Now you might go, well, duh, of course, John, of course women are going to pray at church. What else would they do? Well, there's actually denominations even today that say a woman should not pray in public. I have a friend who went to one of these churches uh, uh, and um I was in a prayer meeting. He was visiting this church. He was in this prayer meeting, and he he prayed something, and then someone else prayed something, and then his wife prayed something as they're visiting this church. And after she prayed what she prayed, the man who was leading the meeting prayed verbatim, word for word, exactly what she prayed. Later on, another man prayed, another man prayed, and then his wife prayed something else again, and this man again repeated word for word what this woman prayed. You know why he did that? Because in their mind, God wouldn't hear her prayers because she's not supposed to pray in public. I know, that's shocking. It's shocking to our common uh, or modern day egalitarian ears, but there were people that have that. There's lots of religions. First century Judaism was one of them that said women should not be involved in these kinds of things. But that's obviously not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying women should pray in humble dependency. And they are called also to pray in public. Now look at the second part of verse 9. Paul says they should do this likewise also that the women should adorn themselves uh, while they're praying in public. In respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. And this is interesting. It's interesting because Paul goes straight to this issue of how a woman uh, makes herself attractive, really. And he's calling women to de-emphasize both physical and material attractiveness. And what I mean by that is, is the fact that she'd be wearing costly pearls would be showing off her wealth, so to speak. And Paul's frowning on that as well. And this is interesting because, and before you, you overreact or think, God oh, said, I'm not listening to this chauvinistic stuff anymore, just hear me out for a second. In a sense, what Paul is saying here, and this is where the gospel really makes a big difference. Paul is saying to the women, he's saying, Women, listen, you don't need to emphasize your physical attractiveness. That's not what makes you valuable. That's not where your value is. Now, both men and women can struggle with. Uh, wrestling with their value based on how they look. We can do that. It's very easy for you to do that. I'm 51 years old. I'm still vain about having a bit of a belly. I deserve to have a belly at 51, but I'm still vain about it. We, we can all be this way, can't we? But in that day, when women saw, were seen as not much, having much more value than being someone attractive to their husband and serving him and giving him children, can you imagine how freeing this would be? Women... Don't let your main attractiveness be your physical or your material wealth. It's bigger than that. In fact, what does he say in verse 10? He says, But with what what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. In other words, Paul says, listen, don't let your physical attractiveness or your material attractiveness... Be the thing that you emphasize. Now, obviously, Paul's not saying that it's wrong to be physically attractive or you're doing something wrong if you have, uh, you're physically attractive. In fact, he's not even saying it's wrong to braid your hair. This is definitely something cultural. Uh, Paul's writing to the city of Ephesus. They worship Diana or Artemis, uh, the temple god of, uh, goddess of uh, fertility. And so the temple prostitutes would braid their hair and dress in a way that was meant to attract people to that. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, that the the you, you'll, you'll realize this as you get older. I remember when I was uh, uh, maybe just a child, and uh, the first time I saw a prostitute, I was with my dad somewhere, and I saw this woman dressed, I guess you'd say inappropriately or scantily, and I noticed and so my dad said, honey, don't look over there. And then and I said, daddy, why is that woman less dressed like that? And he kind of explained as best as he could to probably a nine or 10 year old what was going on. And how that woman was dressed was probably more modest than the way a lot of women dress today. It's amazing how that happens. But this is what happens. We believe this lie. Even in a culture that says we should all be equally important, there should be equal rights, we still tend to believe this lie. Ladies, tell me if I'm wrong, but that your main value is your attractiveness. No, Paul's saying, no, it's not that. What should be the most attractive part about you is how your life shows the gospel, how your life demonstrates the gospel. This is what your prayer in public should emphasize or should um, demonstrate. Peter says a similar thing than this to this. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter, or Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, Wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very Precious. Now we're going to see next week that this all this kind of commands that Paul's giving are actually in two weeks' time. But uh, the commands that Paul's giving, um, uh, these these don't necessarily mean that a woman's never supposed to say anything. Obviously, if a woman is going to pray or prophesy in public, she's going to have to say something. No, the the idea here is don't compete. Don't feel like you have to compete with male roles to have a gospel witness. And don't think that, that, that your, your, your main attractiveness should be your beauty. Your main attractiveness should be your gospel-centeredness, the character that comes from a life that says, Lord, I want to be pleasing to you. Now, in bringing this up, can you see how, even though Paul is, is drawing distinctions between men and women, how both these things apply to both genders? Can you see that? Can you see that with maybe the possible exception of the fact that, that men are called to go first and set the standard, all the standards are supposed to set are, are standards that women are supposed to follow. And the humility that women are, are showing by being obedient to this is something that men should emulate. This is really important because the more we talk about the distinctions between genders, the easier it is for us to get frustrated with each other. You might not realize this, but I know many men that, uh, really push back against this idea that they're meant to be the head of their homes. And, and, and sometimes they can do that because they are, are strongly egalitarian in their convictions, but sometimes it's because they just don't want the responsibility. They, they don't want that. They, they don't want to humbly submit to God and what he says he'd have them do. Now, this is what God calls men and women to do. Now, now here's how here's I want to close this up. I want to encourage us to take some time. I want to encourage you to take some time in, in uh, your, your living room wherever you are today and just think about these things and be honest with God about these things. Pray with each other if you're with some people about these things. And I want to challenge you if you're not yet a Jesus follower, and this is the kind of stuff that you just think, ah, I don't know if I can follow Jesus because the Bible's so sexist. Well, stay with us. Please hang tight with this study because I hope that you see as we continue through this section, I hope that you're going to see that this isn't about sexism. This is about how God wants to show His goodness through the way men and women relate to each other. I also want to encourage you to to be willing to, to write in with any questions you might have This week, we're going to probably bring up some, uh, just maybe a few questions that maybe a lot of which will be answered the next time we get into 1 Timothy. But also, as we continue through 1 Timothy, there's going to be lots of stuff about how church government works and uh, just about um, how we take care of older people. These are all important issues that have a direct impact on our everyday lives as Jesus followers or as those who are considering if they want to follow Jesus. And so with this study in 1 Timothy, we specifically encourage you to write in your questions. You can send us a simple email. Um, if you don't, if you want it to be anonymous, I'm sure we can come up with a form that'll be anonymous and maybe have that ready for you to fill out. But we really want you to ask your questions, in the, and we're hoping in, in, a, in a few weeks or so to have um, a Sunday morning where as a, as a group of leaders in the church, we'll have men and women on this panel can answer some of these questions can talk about why it is that we try to apply these things from God's Word in the way that we do. But above all things, I want to encourage you in something. What God wants from each of us is a relationship. Men, you might find this difficult, but He calls you to rejoice in the fact that you're the bride of Christ. Women, you might find this difficult, but... God calls you to fight the good fight of faith. Yes, there are distinctive gender roles that we'll be unpacking more next week. But there's so much more about the fact that these different roles emphasize things that God wants all his people to do. So to that end, why don't we pray that God would help us to understand these things and apply them to our life. Father, we thank you so much that you give us these controversial things that force us out of our comfort zones, that force us to think about why we believe what we believe. And and Lord Jesus, we thank you that you know exactly what it means to be having to submit to an authority that is less than you. You submitted to your parents. You even called people to submit to the religious leaders that were far less than perfect. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you know what it's like to lead. You set the example for us as men to lay down our lives for our brides. And so, Lord, we thank you that you've done that for us. Lord, either way, we we want to know you better and we want to show you better. And we pray, Lord, that as we learn these principles, we be able to do that. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. See you soon.